Hello and welcome to Call of the Senate, a podcast presented by the Minnesota Senate DFL Caucus. Our topic today is women's history and the Equal Rights Amendment. I'm joined today by three champions for women's rights, Senator Sandy Pappas of St. Paul, Senator Jen McEwen of Duluth, and Senator Mary Kunash of New Brighton. Senators, thank you for joining today. Today's ERA day, so I'd like to begin our discussion there. Um, and I'd like to hear from each of you on the ERA one by one. Uh, Senator Pappas, you've been advocating for the ERA for decades, so I'd like to begin with you. Uh, could you please share with our listeners a little bit about what the Equal Rights Amendment is, as well as your efforts to organize around this issue? Well, if we'd had the ERA when Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, started challenging um, discriminatory laws, she wouldn't have had to spend so much time in court. Um, it really lays the basic requirement that uh, women cannot be discriminated against in employment and have to be provided with accommodations when necessary. So, um, I mean, other states have had ERAs. We've had states that have approved the ERA, uh, the, the national ERA for decades. So it's time to get the job done. Right, and you know, I believe Minnesota passed it way back in 1973, if I'm correct. Um, and a number of other states have passed it, like you mentioned, um, but never quite enough to meet that high bar for the constitutional amendment. Um, but Senator Kunesh and Senator McEwen, have you, um, you know, I see your uh, ERA yes button. Uh, Senator Kunesh, do you have any thoughts on the ERA? And, and can you tell us a little bit about your advocacy uh, for the Equal Rights Amendment? Sure. Um, I, uh, of course, I'm a first year senator, but for the past four years, I've been in the House of Representatives. And during that time, uh, I carried and championed and actually passed the bill, House File 13, that would have placed an equal rights amendment into our state constitution. Um, it would have put it on the ballot in front of the voters this past election in 2020. And that ballot statement would have read, um, we shall, uh, shall the Minnesota constitution be amended to provide that equality under the law must not be abridged or denied on the account of gender. And uh, fortunately that, that um, bill actually did pass off of the house floor. It did not pass off of the Senate floor. I don't even know that it got a hearing. And so that was you know, one more attempt that uh, to, to deny our rights on account of gender. And that the language of, of the bill that I carried um, uses the word gender rather than sex at the end. And that language is similar, but it's not identical to the proposed equal rights amendment to the US constitution that died. And though maybe not for good, um, when an insufficient number of states ratified it before Congress in 1982. And so we are really hoping uh, once again to bring this back. We have so much support uh, within the, the legislature as well as you know our constituents. And so we'll continue to work on this until we can get it done. Well, good. And it's continued to be, like you mentioned, uh, an important issue at the Capitol with constituents. You know, today's ERA day and uh, you can still see the uh, signs around the Capitol and uh, everyone wearing green. Uh, there's still a push for the ERA and it's not the uh, the fight has not gone anywhere. So no. Senator McEwen, do you have any thoughts on the ERA that you'd like to share as we uh, get into uh, some of the 
the bulk of our conversation here uh, and we get into the details later on. Yeah, just, just, I mean, it's just been such a long time coming. I mean, I also have been a new member of the Minnesota State Senate and um, I'm really pleased and thrilled to be joining into the Senate and have these amazing colleagues already having done important work over many years um, on advancing the cause of the Equal Rights Amendment and I'm just really happy to to jump in and get to work alongside of them. It, it's just, just been a long time coming. It's way past time to, to pass this and to have this as a foundational part of the law of the land. Senator McEwen has the resolution to Congress about the ratification. Uh, maybe she should tell us about that because we're very close to the to the national ERA being fully ratified. Yeah, yeah this year it's pretty exciting. It's actually the uh, federal Senate uh, file one, um, which is to um, extend that artificially kind of created deadline so that they can go ahead and they can move. So, that, so the resolution is to urge them to go ahead and move forward and to say that the Minnesota um, Senate and the Minnesota legislature is behind them and is asking them and urging them to go ahead and move forward. We're behind them doing that. And if that's the case, then um, all the states, we have the number of states that we need to ratify then, correct? It's very close. I think so, yeah. I think Pennsylvania was the last state yeah. to prove it. Yeah, yeah. so it's very exciting. It, it, we actually are very close. So just to clarify for the listeners, is that it was there was an arbitrary date set on the original ERA that passed in the U.S. Congress uh, way back in the 70s that said that I believe it was seven years uh, that had to be ratified by all the states. So what you're saying is that the, the Senate file in the U.S. Senate is proposing to get rid of that, that uh, arbitrary date and just allow states to ratify it at any point. Is that right? I believe so. Is that your understanding, Senator Pappas? That's yes, my understanding. Yes, that's yeah. what it does. So, and yeah. and um, once the Congress decides um, that that arbitrary deadline does not apply, then we have enough states to approve right. the constitutional amendment. Right. Yeah. Um, well, we'll discuss a number of topics today related to the ERA, but I also want to discuss, uh, you know, women's leadership, uh, women's health access, and uh, a number of other topics like that. And so, Senator Pappas, you're the co-founder and executive director of Forward Global Women, a nonprofit that's focused on women's leadership, among other important progressive uh, initiatives. And what has your experience been like as the executive director of that organization, and how have you supported the leadership development of, of other women? Well, this whole initiative really came out of a, a kind of a personal interest in the Middle East. My daughters live in Northern Israel and my grandchildren live there as well. And so the whole issue of kind of peace between Israelis and Palestinians and surrounding neighbors became very personal to me. So with my uh, partners in Jordan and Israel, we co-founded Forward Global Women. So we work with women in Jordan, Palestine, Israel, and Northern uh, Africa as well, Tunisia, uh, Morocco, and Egypt. And we, right now we're doing webinars because of COVID, but we usually were doing an in-person training and networking and leadership development convening, uh, bringing teams from these different countries. Um, our teams are made up of activists, of academics, and of women that are either in government or were in government. Um, and now we're hoping to, um, our, our canceled convening, which was supposed to be in Sevilla, Spain, 
last summer is being rescheduled for late summer, early fall, fingers crossed if, uh, if my partner countries get the vaccine. Um, and then we're gonna bring on a number of younger women leaders as well. And our most recent webinar we did in February did feature two Palestinian young women leaders on the rise. So it's been fun, you know, it's a part-time job for me as the legislature. Um, but it's been a really uh, worthwhile job. I mean, we don't fool ourselves that we're going to make peace in the Middle East, but we all have to do our, our small part that we can uh, on all of our progressive values. Well, you certainly made a contribution to those efforts and uh, for peace in the Middle East. And, and uh, you know, I sure hope that you're- And women to... are taking the lead right. in many cases. Right. right, right. And, you know, I hope that you're able to convene over the summer because that's such an important work and uh, and, and plays such an important role in, in the development and leadership skills of, of women. And like you mentioned, for, for young women. Um, I'd also like to, to ask, you know, Senator McEwen, you're you're the lead author of the Protect, Protect Reproductive Options Act, also known as the PRO Act in the Senate. Um, I should also note that Senator Pappas is a co-author of that bill. And so what does that bill do to protect reproductive freedom in Minnesota? Well, let me first say that um, I'm very proud to be the lead author of the PRO Act. And I'll, I'm very pleased to talk about it. But I want to make sure um, that people understand that the, the Equal Rights Amendment is, is a separate issue than the Protect Reproductive Options Act. And I think that's important yeah. because as we know, um, certain choices in the reproductive care spectrum include abortion. And um, there are some people who are fundamentally opposed to abortion access who, who are champions of the Equal Rights Amendment. So I just wanna make sure that those are separated for those who, who hold different beliefs on, on those issues and, and understand that those are not, um, they don't always have to go together. Although that's right, our right for in me, Minnesota, but they don't have to go together. Yeah, in Minnesota, important... our right to uh, choice to abortion is really based on our privacy laws. It is, it is. And what this legislation does, the Protect Reproductive, Protect Reproductive Options Act, um, really codifies that right to privacy in our statutory law so that there already is a, a right to access uh, the spectrum of reproductive health care in Minnesota under our um, court law. The, the, our courts have found that we have a right to privacy in that area and that's that's wonderful. Um, but what this does is provide us some extra protection um, in our very personal decisions that we make about our reproductive health care. So it codifies that people have the right to choose or the right to refuse um, the, their, in regard to their own bodies and their own um, health care choices. And um, it, it really takes, it, it, it enshrines that politicians really have no place in that very personal decision for people. That it shouldn't be me deciding for, any, for somebody else what they're going to do. Um, it shouldn't be any other politicians deciding what an individual is going to do um, in regard to their reproductive health care choices. So it just really gets us to the fundamentals of um, these are our rights, and we're going to enshrine them in our statutory law as well as in the court. So you mentioned health inequities there, and this ties in nextly to the, another topic that I wanted to ask you about, which is that you've you've advocated for the Minnesota Health Plan and for a single payer healthcare program in in Minnesota. And I'm wondering how um, how you think a universal healthcare program could address inequities, particularly for women and for mothers in our healthcare system. Well, um, as 
we've heard many times, and I don't think we can say it enough, we are the only developed industrialized nation in the world uh, that ties our healthcare to our employment and doesn't provide healthcare as a right to our citizens. We are also the wealthiest nation to ever exist on the planet. Um, so we really don't have any excuses for not providing healthcare as a right to the people of Minnesota and the people of the United States. And I do support um, Medicare for all. And I also support the Minnesota health plan, which is the sort of just Minnesota specific um, single payer health care plan that has been put forth by Senator John Marty. Um, I, I think if there's ever been a time for us to rally around single payer health care, it's, it's now in the midst of a pandemic. We just saw this past year how millions of people lost their health care because they lost their employment because of a catastrophic event, a worldwide pandemic. And that's wrong. And there's no reason for it. There's no reason for it except for profit. So I, I do think, and this, it, it does affect um, women and vulnerable populations more um, because the, you know, the jobs that they're working, if they lose that job, all of a sudden they lose their health care in, in addition to that. Um, so I, I do think that a single payer healthcare system, a system that guarantees healthcare as a right to people that's not tied to their employment, you're never going to lose your healthcare, you're always going to see, be able to get the healthcare that you need. Um, it really would be a game changer in so many ways, but especially for women's freedom and women's autonomy to be able to make their own economic decisions, to have decisions and power within their own within their families, within their jobs, within their communities, to be able to have that freedom of movement between employment, freedom, you know, just to make fundamental choices for their well-being. So I do, I do support the Minnesota Health Plan and single-payer health care. I'm a, a big advocate of that. And um, I think that we're, we're behind. We need to catch up. Definitely. So shifting gears just a little bit here, um, Senator Kunesh, uh, an important area of focus for you has been your work on the missing and murdered indigenous women. And in 2018, you introduced a bill in the house uh, to create a task force for missing and murdered indigenous women, which passed with broad bipartisan support. Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was unanimous support. Uh, two years later in December, 2020, um, so at the end of, uh, end of last year, the results of that task force were published. What did you learn from that report? And, and what are you doing in the Senate to address the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in Minnesota? Well, first of all, you are correct. It, it did pass with 100% bipartisan support in both bodies in the House and the Senate, which I am so thankful for. Um, and I'm really proud to, to um, be able to do this work and thankful for all the folks that worked on the report and, and gathering the information. But what it really did is that it confirmed that there is a whole lot of pain from the history of violence against our Minnesota Native women uh, and communities and a lot more than I even imagined because although um, our, our American Indian women and girls make up just 1% of our state population, from 2010 to 2018, the data shows that 8% of all murdered women and girls in Minnesota were American Indian. Mm -hmm. And that just in the months of uh, 2012 to 2020, anywhere from 27 to 54 American Indian women and girls in Minnesota went missing. 
And so uh, it confirmed what we knew antidotally and uh, provided data for creating this, this, um, this report as well as creating uh, missing and murdered indigenous relatives. We're now, now calling it relatives because we know it affects not just women and girls, but men and boys and our two-spirit community as well because um, uh, law enforcement agencies reported that 173 trafficking, sex trafficking incidences in 2017, of those, 20% of those victims were American Indian. And so we know that the disproportionate amount really needs to be addressed. And so what I found out um, is that sex trafficking continues across the state. That's one of the blaring um, uh, um, results of this report. Just recently, there were seven arrests in an undercover sting um, in the last month. And not surprisingly, two of them, um, possibly three of them, of them were uh, Enbridge Line 3 employees. And so I feel like we brought attention, we provided those connections between investigation and law enforcement, and more communication from a wide variety of jurisdictions. So we're working on getting uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Office created. I have a bill that's ready to go. Uh, we're asking for funding for support services for prevention, addressing violence and creating safe places for, um, for the, the care of our communities, not just our native communities, but the communities that find themselves embroiled in this, this, this uh, historic violence. So um, resources around mental, emotional and, and practical life supports. And we'll continue doing the work of investigating these sort of things. Well, your leadership on this issue has been really important. I think you filled a void um, when you first uh, began to work on this and, and you've, you've led on this and you've really been able to unify um, the legislature and bring together, you know, like I mentioned, broad bipartisan support for this work, uh, which is just great to see. So um, I also just wanted to ask you as we start to wrap up here, we've discussed several important issues today related to women's rights, women's uh, health and reproductive justice. And while, while, uh, while we're on this topic, I'd also like to address the, the topic of, of, of equity, specifically as it pertains to wages. Um, so women still earn roughly 80 cents uh, for every dollar earned by men. And this figure has likely gotten worse because of the, the pandemic. So what can the government do? What can the state government do to ensure that women enjoy equity, both in the workplace on a day-to-day -day basis, but also on payday? Yeah. Well, you mentioned that women make about 80% of what men do, and it's probably worse um, post-COVID. Uh, post but it's even worse for women of color. The, the, the pay gap is even significantly wider. Those uh, wage gaps remain despite the, the passage of, of legislation that we've all worked so hard for or to support. You know, there's the Equal Pay Act that was way back in 1963 and it's still not um, being fully implemented. And so um, we have to work even harder, especially here in Minnesota, so that women are receiving equal pay for equal work. And they're just not, let alone equal pay for the kind of value that they come out of it. So what can we do? Well, we can add that ERA statement to our constitution. So uh, equal pay is enforceable by constitution for all workers, not just women. Um, we can pass 
as paid family leave because we know that a far greater proportion of women um, have had to cut back or generally cut back or interrupt their time in their paid workforce to deal with family responsibilities. And um, one of the statistics that I remember is that 15 years after graduating college, male business school graduates um, are making 75% more than their female graduates, unless those women had no children and rarely took any time off. Mm -hmm. So if you were willing to forego your family and take less time off, maybe you would make some equal pay then to a man. And so um, we have to address factors that are gonna impact women's decisions like um, workplace discrimination, a lack of uh, women-friendly policies and resources in the workplace specifically, you know, for the unique responsibilities of women. Um, those persistent stereotypes that steer women and men towards different education. So really ensuring that we are uh, encouraging girls as well as boys to go into some of the, the less usual professions. Um, we have to make sure that there is adequate uh, information around training and different career paths. And of course, we have to have to have to address the, um, the myriad forms of sexism that are both subtle and blatant in our society. And Luke, we did take a mini step forward in 2014 when we passed the Women's Economic Security Act yeah. so that all businesses doing business with the state uh, have to uh, certify that they are paying women comparable to what they're paying men. So it can't just be in the same job, but in like jobs yeah. uh, that, are, uh, that are rated the same. So that's been really important uh, to make that set statement as a state. But I did wanna share something with the audience um, that I found, and that is uh, how far we've come. So in 1914, a New Mexico court noted that the old common law, in the old common law, women were incapable mentally of exercising judgment and discretion and were classed with children, lunatics, idiots, and aliens. Bad words, all of them. Similar, similar stereotypes had to be overcome to win the 19th Amendment, which was women's right to vote, to serve as jurors, to own property, to inherit equally, to serve in public office, to own credit cards, to keep their own names, and the list goes on. The Equal Rights Amendment would have taking care of all of those things. All of them. I just want to thank all of you uh, for joining today. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation. Uh, what a fantastic uh, episode today. And I, uh, I hope to have all three of you back on the podcast at some point again in the future. So thank you. And I'm really thrilled to be working with my new colleagues, Senator McEwen and Senator Kunish. They <laughs> add a lot to the Senate. Thanks so much for having us. This has been really fun. Yep. Great. It's a good way to start the morning. Yeah. Thank you, Senators. Thanks for joining us today on Call of the Senate. Find us online at senatedfl.mn or on social media under the username at senatedfl. See you next week.